We have just received a statement from Buckingham Palace. An announcement from the Royal Household. Schedules for the following announcement. Buckingham Palace has announced the death of His Royal Highness, the Duke of Edinburgh. It is with deep sorrow that Her Majesty, the Queen, announces the death of her beloved husband. He was 99 years old. Since the announcement of his death on Friday morning, at the age of 99, we've heard tributes from around the world to His Royal Highness, the Duke of Edinburgh. His life, his foibles, his place in history. You'll hear numerous accounts of his life and times in the coming days, but today, Stories of Our Times concentrates on the one event that changed Prince Philip's life forever. It was announced from Sandringham at 10.45 today, February the 6th, 1952, that the king, who retired to rest last night in his usual health, passed peacefully away in his sleep earlier this morning. It was a moment of sadness, of shock, and of clear responsibility. The moment his young wife became queen. I, whose youth was passed in the august, unchallenged and tranquil glories of the Victorian era, may well feel a thrill in invoking once more the prayer and the anthem. God save the Queen. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Philip, the Lost Prince. Having served with distinction in the Second World War, Prince Philip, a serving naval officer and Prince of Greece and Denmark, returned to Britain to marry Princess Elizabeth. With the King's health deteriorating, the young couple took on a greater share of royal duties. It was while they were on an official tour of the Commonwealth that the news broke. In February 1952, Elizabeth and Philip were in treetops. This was a, a hotel in Kenya, and what they had was this rather marvellous treehouse over a watering hole. So you could stay in this treehouse and look down at all the animals coming in to drink the water. So it was a really wonderful experience. And Elizabeth and Philip went to stay there. And what happened while they were there is that the king died. That's the historian, Professor Kate Williams. She recounts the moment when Prince Philip heard that King George VI had died and his own life was about to change forever. At the palace, when they realise that the king is dead and that the queen is in the treehouse and they don't know how to get hold of her, well, this is panic. They send a sort of telegram out there, but unfortunately the telegram doesn't get there. So the palace don't realise that Elizabeth doesn't know so the news goes out across the world that the king is dead and Elizabeth is the queen. And she doesn't know, really. She's the last person in the world to know that she's queen. It was the queen's private secretary who was the first in her party to learn about the death, 
while on a day trip into the local town. He goes back to the hotel and he manages to get hold of Philip and says to Philip, you have to tell your wife that impossible job falls to Philip. Philip must tell his wife that her beloved father, to whom she's been so devoted her whole life, he is dead and she is now the queen. Their lives, as they've known them, are over. The news, already crying out across the front pages of newspapers all over the world, was about to shatter their idol. Philip tells Elizabeth the news, everything has to change, the tour, that's the end of it, they have to go back. And Elizabeth, that evening, she's writing her letters of apology to the people that she cannot now see. And while Elizabeth is writing these letters, really her feelings are very covered up. But Philip's aren't. He's devastated. He's basically slumped on the sofa with the times over his face. He's just heartbroken. He's heartbroken for his wife. He's heartbroken over his father-in-law. And I think also he knows that this is the end of his freedom. To understand Prince Philip's anguish in that moment, we need to understand more about the man, and in particular, his appetite for reading. He really did love books, and Alice in Wonderland was one he particularly liked. For me, it's very poignant that Prince Philip was such an admirer of Alice in Wonderland. It is perhaps the greatest story of a child going into a world that she doesn't understand and has to make sense of it, a very illogical world. I think that says a lot about Prince Philip, who had to make his way in an unfamiliar world with no help from very early on. He was cast out into the world. He had no parental support and really had to make his own way with no help no advice and you know he had to work out in this complicated place with no base what he would do so I really think that the story of Alice in Wonderland which above all is a story of a little girl who keeps her head when everyone else has lost theirs I think was very striking for him. It was a harbinger of what was to come but what was it that first drew a young Prince Philip to a book like Alice in Wonderland. What do we know about his early years? Prince Philip had a, a really fractured childhood. That's the Times columnist, Matthew Paris. His paternal grandfather was placed on the Greek throne, although he was actually more Danish than he was Greek. He was assassinated, his paternal grandfather. His uncle succeeded the grandfather, and then there was a coup d'etat in Greece, and the whole family, including the infant Philip, were forced into exile. Prince Philip had a very tough life as a child. We definitely say nowadays that it was neglectful. We would probably even use the words abusive about it. He had to flee from his home in Greece in an orange crate because of the overturning of the Greek royal family. They fled in exile to Paris. And there in Paris, his family really fragmented. His mother, Princess Alice, she had a very difficult time. She suffered and she really had a lot of, sort of depressive episodes. She was seen as hysterical and she was essentially shut away by his father in a lunatic asylum for madness. So Philip lost his mother very young. He was sent to a very go-ahead school in Switzerland. The mother and father were estranged from each other. The mother 
recovered eventually and ended up founding a, a nunnery and, and, and looking after the poor. The father became a bit of a playboy in Monaco. So you can imagine this small boy, family exiled from Greece, sent to a, a, a strange, rather rugged school. Mother goes nuts, father becomes a playboy. Not a traditional family background in any way. His father really was a womaniser. He was a very absent father. And certainly Philip, as the youngest, got the raw end of the stick, really. His sisters were very fond of him, but they were older than him. They got married and started their own families. He, he has this really very lonely life as a child. Philip really had a life with servants and housekeepers until he was sent away to school when he was really very small. Before he became the Duke of Edinburgh, with a large family of his own, at the beating heart of the British establishment, the young Prince Philip was a boy who had been exiled from his home, separated from his parents, and was in search of somewhere to belong. Gordonstone School was really the place where Philip was happy. He's about 11 or 12 at this point. Gordonstone was outdoor kind of place, suited Philip down to the ground. But also the headmaster, Kurt Harm, was a very kind man and really saw Philip's talents and brought him out of himself. Gordonstown is a boarding school on the east coast of Scotland. The same kind of lessons are taught as in most schools and we play the same kind of games. It was cold showers, it was running outside, it was mud, it was dirt. It was all about forming these boys as tough boys and toughening them up. And it was all about discipline. You were told not to eat between meals and all this kind of thing. No one goes to a British boarding school for the food. And Gordonstone was really on a little bit of the bad side. It was also vegetarian. You can imagine what vegetarian food was like at this point in the 1930s. There wasn't much understanding of general vegetarian nutrition. So it really was pretty stodgy. But it didn't seem to matter because Philip grew up the picture of health and you couldn't imagine anyone looking healthier and more outdoorsy than Philip. So clearly a bit of stodgy British pancake didn't do him that much harm at all. Gordonstone's a pioneering hybrid of traditional English private school values and the ancient Greek ideals of education modelled on Plato's Republic, a Spartan ethos, physical challenge, martial discipline. The school's four pillars of education were core, internationalism, challenge, responsibility and service. And it's always said that the young prince really thrived on that. He became head boy, he became captain of cricket and hockey. Like at all other British public schools, there's a great emphasis upon the team spirit. I remember Prince Philip was captain of our cricket eleven. But perhaps where we're a little different from other schools is that there are some additional opportunities for a boy to discover his true bent. Kurt Hahn's appraisals of this competitive student include these phrases, lively intelligence, meticulous attention to detail and pride of workmanship. Kurt Hahn also believed in, in the concept of rescue, you know, mountain rescue, rescue from rock faces, things like that. And all this was drummed into the boys, and I think it found a very sympathetic audience in the young Philip. Look at his later life, the Duke of Edinburgh's award scheme that he was not just a, a titular head of, but really interested in taking young people out into the wild, teaching them how to fend for themselves. He loved it. His son, Prince Charles, whom I think he probably should never have sent to Gordonstone, I didn't think liked it nearly 
as much. One got that impression anyway, but for Philip, it was just the right thing and a good preparation for the Royal Navy. He was, uh, he was a go-ahead kid, really interested in, in the modern world and in the active life. And there is no indication that from this very fractured family background, you had a fractured boy at all. He didn't mind a bit of mud. What he didn't have was affection and love and understanding, and that's what he got at school. He was great at outdoor pursuits, popular at school. No one mocked him for not having a family because lots of children were moving around by this point. And the teachers were very fond of him, and above all, Kurt Hahn, the headmaster. So Philip was never so happy as he was there, and it was because it was the family that he never had. Prince Philip relished the rugged and disciplined structure he found at school, but not even Gordonston could protect him from tragedy striking outside the school grounds. But it was at Gordonston when Philip suffered the worst tragedy of his early years, and this was in 1937, so he's only 16. His favourite sister, Cecile, you know, he's absolutely devoted to Cecile. She's the one he loves most of all. She dies in an air crash, along with her husband and her children and her newborn baby. She was his only family member who he felt understood him, and now she's dead in this horrific tragedy, and he has to go to the funeral. The year after, his uncle dies of bone cancer. He keeps losing all these people he loves. His mother is sent away. He loses his sister and all her family. This is a child of endless heartbreak and endless pain, so it's not surprising if... Really, as a consequence of this, he learned to shut away his emotions and not depend on people too much because he'd lost so much by the young age of just 17. Despite the pain he endured and the early emotional setbacks, Prince Philip was developing into a rather striking young man. Philip was very handsome. It's no getting around it. He was really like a young Viking, I think many people said. He was very tall. He was very blonde. He had this very rugged face. But as soon as he becomes 17 or 18, he finds himself really being followed by women everywhere because he's so handsome. So it's really quite difficult for him in his early manhood that on one hand, there were no women in his life. And on the other hand, suddenly... He leaves boarding school, and every time he goes anywhere, there are all these women falling in love with him. His obvious popularity and the newfound attention he was attracting did nothing to assuage his sense of rootlessness. Philip is a prince, but he's also one without a home and really without any money at all. So he has this rather splendid social life as a young man in Europe and meets other royals, particularly royals in exile, minor royals, but they know that this is a young man who's lost everything. As Philip got older and went to stay at house parties, there would be the visitor's book. In the visitor's book, you put your name and your address. And Philip would put his name and no fixed abode because he didn't have a home. All these other people tended to have some kind of huge ancestral home. It was really obvious to him that he would have to make his own way in the world. It was while he drifted along the social whirl of life as a European royal that the exuberant Philip drew a thoughtful comparison from the Queen of Yugoslavia. The Queen of Yugoslavia, she described him as a huge hungry dog, perhaps a friendly collie, who had never had a basket of his own. And I think that's true, he never did have a basket of his own. And that's what he was looking for. That was all about to change. 
In the late 1930s, Prince Philip was a handsome young man about town, but he was longing for a home and a family of his own. It was whilst he was at Naval College that he had an encounter that would change the course of his life. He was 18, she was 13, and her parents, the King and Queen, and Elizabeth and Margaret, had come to pay a visit to the Naval College. Philip was asked to entertain. He took her out to look around and he showed her he could jump over tennis nets. She really thought that was marvellous. Played some games with her and he was really very kind to her. She was just a charming little girl to him. But she was absolutely infatuated with him. I mean, she fell in love with him on the spot. He's handsome, he's royal, he's going to be a naval hero, he's the top of Dartmouth. How could you not, this sheltered young girl? After they had the visit, the entire party, including Philip, because he was, of course, a distant relation, was invited to the royal yacht for tea. And Elizabeth, according to her governess, watched with fascination while Philip ate a banana split. After the tea, everyone else who wasn't a royal member disembarked. The royal yacht set off, travelling back, and all the cadets in the Naval College got into their own little boats and they followed behind the royal yacht. All the cadets turned back, apart from one, apart from Philip, who carried on rowing behind the royal yacht and refused to turn back. And finally, the king had to command him to turn back because they were going out too far. What a striking thing for Elizabeth to have seen. Her last sight of Philip was him frantically rowing to keep up with the royal yacht, this little boat, this little man out there. She completely set her heart on him. That was the man she was going to marry. The rowing boat escapade had clearly worked. Philip made such an impact on the family that he was invited to spend Christmas with the otherwise very private royal unit. Philip used to go and stay with the royal family for Christmas during the war because he had no family. He wrote them thank you letters. It's evident in these thank you letters that he'd never experienced this family life. The Queen and her parents, Elizabeth, Margaret, George and Elizabeth, they were this really tight-knit little family. They called themselves We Four. They were devoted to each other, spent so much time together, even during the war, that I think Philip fell in love with Elizabeth because... She's 17, she's this lovely young woman, intelligent, very innocent, but also he falls in love with this very close, very intimate family. And I think he sees very much in it the fact is that if he's absorbed into this family, it will be a way in which he can have this refuge, this home, this anchor that he's never had. Philip, by this point, he'd had a lot of female admirers and Elizabeth was very different. She was very innocent, very sheltered. Also, Philip, I think, was looking for a woman who was very much secure, organised, steadfast. His mother had been so fragile, suffered so much. So in Elizabeth really was someone who had kept calm throughout the war and carried on, and that was incredibly appealing to him. The post-war courtship was a restrained affair. Philip started courting Elizabeth really in earnest, but it had to be quite a decorous courtship. He came up to see her at weekends at free times. He would stay in Kensington Palace with one of his elderly aunts and uh, then go over to see Elizabeth. And they'd go out on the town together, but usually Margaret or someone chaperoned them. And if Philip came to visit Elizabeth in Buckingham Palace, Margaret also would chaperone them and they would be in the rooms that the girls had, still called their nursery. They'd have orange juice there and they didn't chat. 
As the war ended and the nation concentrated on recovery, the couple's relationship intensified. Everyone, I think, was discombobulated by the peace because it's what you hope for for so long. All you want is peace. And then it comes, this moment that you've looked forward for, that you've fought for. And it is quite difficult. You think, what next? So it's quite a hard moment for everyone. Philip is feeling rather directionless, but the two of them have each other and they start this really devoted, intense courtship. And it's not surprising that really very quickly after they start their courtship, they do start discussing marriage. Once they were betrothed, the question arose, of course, about their wedding. Prince Philip had been baptised into the Greek Orthodox Church, but he didn't seem too bothered about questions of religious affiliation, so he quite happily fell in with the idea that the wedding would have to be a Church of England wedding and take place in the, in the traditional way. How was the relationship between Philip and Elizabeth viewed by the country? I think the cabinet and Churchill were a little bit worried about anti-German sentiment, given, given the Duke's own origins. And that's probably the reason why he was not allowed to give uh, his anglicised name, Mountbatten, from Battenberg, to the family. There may have been a little bit in, in the press, but generally speaking, the prince was received by public opinion with, with great curiosity and interest, and he was inherently an attractive figure. I think the general public quite like him. They think he's handsome. They think he's a war hero. There is concern about Philip himself. Unfortunately, he's not very liked, particularly by the court and by the household and by the politicians. There is a lot of anti-German sentiment, and it's very unfair, because even though Philip was uh, such a brave fighter on the Allied side, has always identified himself as British, has been at British school since the age of 11. People keep saying he's German. And so there is this this anti-German hatred that starts to be projected onto him. And when it becomes clear that Elizabeth is serious about him, he's not just a distant cousin chaperoning her to musicals. There's a lot of concern. They want her to marry an English aristocrat. They think that will come across much better in terms of patriotism. They don't want her marrying this foreigner, this German person. He didn't have British nationality, and so this is seen as a problem. And also there are lots of judgments passed on his character. People say he's ill-tempered, he can be rough, and they say he's not inclined to be faithful. So really, there's a lot of opposition to the marriage. The politicians think he's not right because he doesn't seem British enough. No British nationality and he seems too foreign. The courtiers think he's not the right personality. I think essentially they think he's not malleable enough for them. And the king and queen, well, they don't want their daughter to get married so quickly. I think really they had their heads in the sand. They didn't realise how much she was falling in love with Philip. Elizabeth was determined to marry Philip. She saw in him the perfect man and also the perfect consort. Showing the steely determination of a future sovereign, Princess Elizabeth wouldn't be influenced. She was going to marry Prince Philip. There were many debates about the wedding. It was really very post-war. There was still rationing. There was a lot of suffering in Britain, a lot of poverty. And there was a real great concern that a big royal wedding would crash the British economy. The decision was made by Churchill that it wouldn't be a small wedding, it was going to be a big wedding because it would, he felt, cheer morale. It was going to be a big moment for European royalty. 
It was the first big royal occasion since the war, the royal wedding, and the first ceremonial royal occasion for quite a long time, and it attracted enormous amount of attention. Mostly favourable, the nation seemed to forgive the fact that all their food was still rationed. They were having one of those most lavish show celebrations of the age. As the 21-year-old princess arrived at Westminster Abbey, it was her moment too. For Elizabeth, this was of necessity something more. From this hour, a new life begins. Mingled with her private happiness is the sure knowledge that she must now enter a widening field of public duty and responsibility. The wedding was such a great moment for European royalty. There was dancers. They even had a conga of European royalty on the nights before, uh, which was led by the king and queen through the royal apartments because this was the first time for celebration that they had. And you see all this optimism. Her dress is all about rebirth. Everyone, I think, invests a lot in this really very young couple that they are going to be the future. There was a roar of excitement as the princess, aided by her husband, appeared and stepped into the glass coach for the drive back to the palace. It was the signal for the most heartfelt outburst of affection that Britain has seen since the bride's parents led the coronation parade. But not everyone was invited to enjoy the opulent spectacle. One section of European royalty were not invited, and that was going to be Philip's sisters, because they were married to SS officers. Philip was not allowed to have that part of the family there. It was really a wedding in which it was made very clear to him that if you want to marry into the British royal family, you must leave behind that whole part of your life. And that was what he agreed to. For a few brief years, the newlyweds enjoyed a reasonably uncomplicated life, as a naval officer and his wife. It was a time they cherished and a life they were reluctant to give up. The years between the wedding at the end of 1947 and Elizabeth becoming queen at the beginning of 1952, they really are an idyllic time for the family. That is really when they have their normal family life. They have their two children, Charles and Anne, and they set up home together what Elizabeth really loves about this time is that although she has royal duties, they aren't particularly overwhelming. One of their favourite moments is when Philip is stationed to Malta and Elizabeth goes with him and there they live the normal life of a naval officer and his wife. Earlier in the day, the princess had visited ships of the Royal Indian Navy while the Duke was on duty in HMS Checkers. Now Prince Philip is there to share the princess's interest in the American cruiser's prized possession a helicopter, the modern equivalent of an admiral's barge. She's with the other naval wives, he's there in the base. There was time in the evening for socialising, for dancing, for celebrating in Malta. On the previous evening, officers from the American ship attended a gala ball. The hosts are the Saddle Club, the guests of honour, the Princess and the Duke. In the same dance with the Princess is her cousin, Lady Pamela Mountbatten. It's the perfect life for both of them and I think that Philip and Elizabeth thought this was how life was going to be for a long time. But then, on their visit to treetops, their little world was shattered. The king was dead and life was about to change dramatically. The heart of the nation stops. The flags lower in tribute over the mother of parliaments, high over Big Ben, the flag is low as the news spreads. 
the king is dead. The king, our king, is no more with us. Swift from the press, the news flows to the farthest corners of our island. In our hearts, we feel this cannot be. I think it's very clear that both Elizabeth and Philip thought when they married in 1947 that Elizabeth would probably come to the throne when she was about 40. They didn't expect the king to die when he was such a young man, you know, just into his 50s. I think they thought he would be 60 or 70. That would be reasonable, I think. So they would imagine Elizabeth coming to the throne when she's 40, mid-40s. That would give them quite a long time to enjoy their life as a family. But history and circumstance had intervened. The responsibility of monarchy went on to consume their collective lives. How much has Prince Philip's influence enriched the nation and how will his passing change the landscape of the royal family? Here's Matthew Paris again. I feel I've got closer to him. I, I always have admired him and I don't admire him any less for having found out about him more. Ever since I was a little boy, I've followed Prince Philip's life and career I always admired the way Prince Philip seemed to be involved with modern engineering. He would be opening nuclear power stations, going down mines. He loved power stations of, of any kind. One of the more recent times was when he went underground to see progress with the crossrail tube un under London. Philip has always been very, very interested in civil engineering, any kind of engineering. He was in his 90s and... Uh, down he went and made a fuss about not wanting to wear the helmet and the orange day-glow jacket and everything, very much in character, and found the visit fascinating and said, when do you expect it to be open? And they said, oh, about 2018. And he said, too late for me then. Then there was a pause and he said, oh, I don't know, maybe not. <laughs> and indeed, it was Prince Philip's death that was indefinitely delayed and so was the uh, building of Crossrail. I think historians of the future will look back on this monarchy as being the high watermark of monarchy in Britain but also being the high watermark of what is demanded of those who are in it, the sacrifice and the service and some can do it, some can serve and sacrifice and some could not. I never thought of it as a role. I mean, it's just a way of life. I, mean, I just got on with what seems to be the sensible thing to do under the circumstances. I mean, I don't visualise myself as playing a part. If you don't wholly believe in what you're doing, I mean, you can't create a different image. So I think the only thing to do is to get on and do the best you can with the facilities and in the circumstances and hope you make a reasonably sensible judgement. He was a great support to the Queen, a great support to the monarchy, and his death really is the end of an era. It's the end of the great post-war 20th century monarchy. They were the most famous monarchy, the most celebrated monarchy. The monarchy now is changing and it's never going to be the same. I especially enjoyed the early years of his marriage to Elizabeth, in which he was in every way a moderniser. This was not a crabbed old stick in the mud, as he sometimes may have appeared to be towards the end. This was a young, modern monarch who wanted to modernise Buckingham Palace, wanted to get rid of the footman who wore powdered wigs when he first went into Buckingham Palace, wanted things to be less formal, wanted to protect his wife from the press, a lifelong 
ambition of his and, and wanted to do what he could to boost science and engineering and understanding of science and engineering and enthusiasm for those things. That was the first part of Philip's career. It's allowing people to find out for themselves what's good, what's bad, what's interesting, what's damaging and so on. To develop, in a sense, both self-discovery and discovery of what goes on in the world. I mean, uh, there are a lot of things which I'm connected with that do exactly that. There's the, the award scheme, for instance, which is the whole basis of the exercise, is, is self-discovery. There's the Outward Bound Schools, there's the Sail Training Association. They're all really doing much the same thing. They're trying to give people the opportunity to, to discover for themselves what life could be like. I don't think the younger generation now who only remember a, a very old and slightly grumpy man would have any idea what he was like for the first and perhaps most important part of his life. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. My guests today were the historian Professor Kate Williams and Times columnist Matthew Paris. You can read Matthew's articles in The Times on Saturdays or catch up with them at thetimes.co.uk. The producers of this episode were Asir Fuchs and Oliver Adamson. The executive producer is Poppy Damon and sound design was by Falcon Kisseltook. <laughs>